Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, we've all heard the expression, ignorance is bliss. And there's a lot of truth in this. Amen. When you're a child and you're sucking on a can of soda, it's great not knowing that there is the equivalent of 40 packs of sugar in those 12 ounces of liquid joy. You see, not knowing means not worrying, and therefore enjoyment without guilt or fear. It's bliss. And this is true, and it's a great thing. There are so many dangers and hardships that the Lord Himself is right now, at this moment, protecting you and I from. There's so many things that we are ignorant of, we don't have knowledge of. And He's shielding us, He's protecting us. But, regarding the areas where the Lord has given us responsibility, where we should be knowledgeable and not ignorant, where it's our job to know and to engage, the idea of ignorance is bliss can be a very dangerous proposition. It can even be devastating. And today... Today there is something that you and I, we must talk about and we must not be ignorant of. We must be knowledgeable of it. To be ignorant of this fact may feel blissful for a short period of time, but in the end it's going to lead to hurt and hardship. And here is the fact that we have to be knowledgeable of and not ignorant of. There is authority within the local church. There is God-given, God-sourced authority given to the local church. It is real authority given by God. And it must be exercised in order for the church to be a healthy representation of our Lord on this earth. In order for us to actually be faithful, we have to acknowledge and be knowledgeable of, intelligible of, the authority that God gives to the local church. Now, I'm going to look to demonstrate this to some degree today. And whenever I launch out on one of these studies as I'm sure you do when you try to study the Scripture, you, you begin to realize the topic is much larger. The subject is, is far deeper and all-encompassing than we understood it. It really makes it clear to us that the Scriptures, as we talked about the Scriptures last week, the Scriptures are sufficient for all of our life and practice. It's a phenomenal thing. And so, obviously, we can't get to all of it. There's so much here But I do hope to demonstrate this to some degree today that God has given authority to the local church and therefore to increase our knowledge of it and to keep us from ignorance. Now I know the temptation for Christians, for American Christians and for Lancastrian Christians to deny the authority of the church in our lives. We're not looking for more venues of authority. We're not looking for more authorities over us. We're generally looking for less because we tend to think of freedom associated with less authority. But the truth is it's something that God does. And it would be a mistake to deny or to avoid or to squirm away from or to act like it doesn't matter. 
and it would harm us most. The individual who rejects authority cannot wield authority in any meaningful way. And the individual that rejects God's authority puts themselves themselves in danger, in a bad path. And it would harm not only ourselves, but it would also harm the testimony of the church. And so there is authority in the local church. But that is a good thing. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And that's why we're doing this series. We're trying to reground, to reestablish the notion, the principle of authority back into the Word of God rather than into the ideas that the world has or even our flesh conjures up or that the devil would like to plant into our hearts and minds. We are saying with God, with the Scriptures, that authority is good and right and actually enhances freedom, appropriate freedom, enables us to worship God and to understand Him. And so recognizing that authority is given by God to the local church It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's why we're doing this series, not just with the local church, but in every area. And after this week, I believe we only have three more weeks of this series. And in this series so far, we've talked about the fall of authority, how authority has fallen on tough times since the fall of humanity, but especially in our day, both because of the inclination to abuse authority that's given or to abdicate the authority that's given, which is also a form of abusing it, but also because of the inclination of the individual to cast off and rebel against authority. And so we had to establish from Scriptures and explain the fall of authority. We've also talked about the authority of our King, Jesus. And we recognize that that we have a governmental structure that's, that's different than the one that we presently live in in our society from day to day. We actually have a monarch, and he is above all, and we need to bow our hearts, our lives to our monarch, King Jesus. And we've also talked about last week the authority of God's Word to recognize that God has revealed himself to us. And we're called not to stand above this and judge it, nor to kind of leave it aside and act like it it doesn't apply. But actually, we're called to sit under this, to bring our lives under it. And as we grow to be like our Savior, to bring our lives more and more under the Scriptures, under the authority of God's Word. That's good for us. It glorifies Christ and it transforms us. Today we take the topic further. From the Scriptures, we will look at the authority given to pastors within the local church. The authority given to pastors within the local church. Now, the authority given to pastors in the local church is not the only authority given to the local church. Next week, Steve is going to teach about how we're to submit to one another. There is a corporate authority in the church that we are to exercise together. But today we're going to focus on this. If I could have that first slide, please. God gives authority to pastors. Oh, that's... Oh, okay, this isn't on, I guess. 
God gives authority to pastors for oversight of the church. And each Christian should wrestle with it. God takes some of His authority, gives it to officers in the church, and He does so for the good of the church and for its ordering. And every Christian, every member of the church has to, has to engage that and, and wrestle with it. And, 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 and notice that I'm using the word wrestle here. Uh, I'm recommending you wrestle, not with the pastor. We're too old for that. But with the pastor's use of authority. And I'll come back to this later, but for now let me simply say that I mean that in a positive sense. You have to grapple with it. You must engage it. You have to consider it. You have to take the principle of the pastor's authority to the mat of Scripture so you can see if it holds up. So we're going to break this topic down today into three parts. And the first part takes us back up to a higher view. So we won't start directly with the pastor but rather with this. Some of God's authority is enforced through the local church. Some of God's authority is enforced through the local church. Now, you've heard of tax or duty-free zones, right? Usually, it's in an airport. The country that you're leaving is trying to get people to buy goods before they return home. One last crack at getting their dollars. And so they offer sales tax-free shopping in the tax-free zones. And I think this idea can apply to how some people view the local church. And And I hate to say it, but I think it can be the standard operating procedure, the way that humans typically interact with authority and the church in this day and age. And it wasn't always so. There was a time when the church was recognized at different places around the world and still is today as an authoritative expression of the body of Christ. But today, especially in the United States, it's much more of a shopper's mentality. And so oftentimes people go to a local church and their idea is that this is an authority-free zone. It's an authority-free zone. Sometimes they think this ought to be a judgment-free zone. This is a, a completely inclusive zone. And entirely, there's no exclusivity in this zone. At least that's what they kind of ideally envision the church as. And that is not a biblical view of the church. The church is not an authority-free zone. But what happens is people can think that way and they begin to relate to it on this basis. And so they come in and they, they give a little and they take a little, you know, service or, or time or money and they, and they, they take a little service and time and, and, and this is fine with them and they want to keep it that way. And, and what that is at the end of the day is that's the individual with a cultural mindset defining the church in their own terms. Unfortunately, I think some churches actually set themselves up in the way that they're structured to embrace that 
And they think of it more as a market mentality. And they say, that's what the market wants. So we'll arrange ourselves and our language and our structure around a market mentality. And if we hit the market just right, things are going to boom. And I'm not here to bring massive criticism to other churches. And I do know the Lord uses all manner of approaches. Some better, some worse. He uses us. And so, please understand, my goal isn't to simply criticize others, but to say, we need to understand what the Bible says about this. The question is, is that a, a biblical, is it a, is it a Christian way to look at the local church with a market mentality? Or is there more to it than that? Unfortunately, it's a highly common attitude, but it's not biblically sufficient. The church is not an authority-free zone. Now, notice in this point up on the screen that I'm saying that some of God's authority is enforced through the local church. I'm not entirely thrilled with the language I've chosen there, but let me give you one example of, of what I mean here. So Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, and just take this one verse, and there, I think there are many verses we could turn to to demonstrate what I'm getting at here, but take this one verse and recognize that the church does not have the authority to bring vengeance on anyone. That's not what the church is organized to do. And in fact, sometimes, especially you think of the Middle Ages, when the church had governmental power, it did bring vengeance at times, and it got into trouble. But the church is not authorized, hasn't been given the authority to bring vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. God has the authority to bring vengeance, but the church does not. So when we talk about authority in the local church, when we talk about authority given to pastors, we're not saying that God's authority is completely mirrored in the church or that the pastors have the same authority of God. No, God forbid, that is not what we're saying. But God gives some of His authority to the local church and expects that authority to be fleshed out and enforced in the local church. And even as you look at this verse, you realize, and this is very important for us to recognize and realize that not every matter will be fully and perfectly resolved here on this earth, not by us. Even when we do things as we ought to do them, even when leadership uh, uh, fulfills its responsibilities properly, even when authority is held rightly, we are guaranteed to get bad outcomes with, with massive conflict and great difficulty that God says, I reserve the right to bring resolution to this on the last day. I'm holding it back for myself. That is the nature of this fallen world to have many loose ends, many hurts that will not be healed until the last day. And that doesn't excuse us from discernment. It doesn't exclude us from standing up for what's righteous. It doesn't exclude us from, from trying to, 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 to engage our responsibility in any given situation, say, what's, what's godly? What's biblical? What's righteous? What should I stand for and stand on? Because too often people are they see themselves as the great mediators. Well, I don't want to get too involved here. and I, I, Well, I don't want to say too much about that or too much about that. But God calls you 
to stand for righteousness. But when you do, recognize that not all matters will be resolved. Nevertheless, even though the church doesn't have the full authority of God, and thank God we don't, I would not want that. The authority we have is enough, is it not? Right? Ask any dad, ask any dad, or I'm sorry, let's put it this way. Ask any husband who gives into his wife's desire because he doesn't want to hear it anymore and then later regrets doing so. Let me ask you this. Should that husband be angry with his wife or should he take his own soul to task? Because he failed to engage the authority God gave him to make the decision out of convenience. Ask any mom who's given in to her children because they want something so badly and they will not stop talking and griping about it and says, okay, fine. Against her judgment, just out of convenience. Now when the kids, you know, break something or take advantage, should she be angry with the children? Or should she learn the lesson of the authority God's given to her? You see, the authority God's given to us is no trifling matter. It's a very weighty thing. And so, thank God we don't have full authority. What He's given us is enough. Nevertheless, the church has real authority. Real authority. Let me give you some examples of the real authority the church has, uh, God has given to the church. And, and this isn't all of them, but it's some of the bigger ones. So, so in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 5, let me turn there. In fact, why don't you turn there, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 5. And you're going to see here that the church has been given the authority to settle disputes. It doesn't mean that believers can't run outside of the church to settle disputes. They can, which is what Paul's correcting here. But the expectation, the assumption is that the church should settle disputes between believers. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And then look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And we'll pause there because I think that gets to it. And here Paul is charging. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Yeah, so, so here Paul's saying the church has the authority to settle disputes. Now, if you know anything about disputes, if you know anything about conflict, people need binding authority or it can't be settled. 
If they're always able to question and say, well, you know, he was slanted and he was against me and, and that guy just didn't understand, but that guy was malicious. And, and, and if it's always questioning the judges, well, then you can't really make any progress, can you? And if it's not binding, if there's no authority there, then the matter can't be settled. And so you end up with this ongoing, terrible conflict that never ends. And so, what do people do? Well, well, they tend to think of the civil magistrate. They tend to think of the civil government and say, I know the government has binding authority. If you don't do what the judge says, they will fine you or they will put you in jail. That's real authority. What Paul is saying here, that's a wrong perspective. Yeah, the civil magistrate has the authority to do that. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But you ought to view the authority within the church as greater than that. And you ought to voluntarily submit yourself to the judgment of the church, to that authority. Because when you do, it glorifies Christ. And he goes on to talk about, wouldn't it be better to be wronged than to, than to run to the authority in the world against your brother and say, hey, this person owes me money. No, the church is to settle those disputes. That's some major and real authority. And it may surprise you to see that the Bible gives that to the church. The idea of church courts are not new. They've been around for a very long time. They are a necessary part of the life of the church. Though we don't call it church court, really. But a second area where the church has real authority is in charging members with truth, especially in regard to destructive behavior. Take a look at 2 Timothy 2. uh, 2.14, remind them of these things, Paul says to Timothy, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Now, Now, just look at this. This is not a simple recommendation. It's much stronger than that. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't like to be charged. I don't like to be talked to with sort of the, the sense of an ultimatum, a strength. I don't want to be talked to like a child. I always want to be brought in on the consideration side of things. You know, hey, why don't you consider this? Your words right here, they're, they're, they're foolish. Let's not talk about these things. But, but that's not what Paul's telling Timothy to do. He's saying with certain known quantities in the church that are causing disruption to the church because of foolish argumentation, you are to speak strongly to them Charging them to stop. Sometimes I love to just consider the language of the New Testament and think about, you know, Peter said this today, Paul said this today, Jesus said this today, in the church, not in the world, in the church, how would it go down? This is one of those times. Let me ask you, what, what, if, what if you were caught in foolish words? And a pastor came and charged you to stop. Would you be more offended that he charged you? Or would you say, thank God, he's looking out for my soul. And that's what I needed. 
Because that's what the Scripture says, the kind of authority the church has. Let me give you another example. Removal from the church for unrepentant sin. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And in chapter 5, he gets to, he, he's going through all these correctives. And in chapter 5, he gets to this, this remarkable moment. And, it, and it, it should, it's the kind of moment that should give us hope, but should also remind us there's nothing new under the sun and should remind us of our responsibility as a church. He gets to this moment in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says, listen, there is a form of immorality among you that's worse than among unbelievers. Basically, a, a man in the church was having a relationship, an adulterous relationship, with his stepmother. And this is in in 1 Corinthians 5. And so look what Paul says to them about this. He says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What words are given to us here? When he calls them arrogant, what's he talking about? What's he talking about when he says, you're arrogant? Here's this immoral relationship going on. You know about it, and you're arrogant about it. What's he talking about? He's talking about their tolerance. He's saying, you tolerate this. You are letting this go on. And he's saying, the church has authority. You have to stop it. You, you have to stop this immoral relationship from happening. And in their tolerance, if you just, just, just think about it from their perspective, just, just give it a few minutes. You could, see, you could see what they'd come up with, right? That it would be loving. It would be merciful. Let me get their side of the story. Let me understand their perspective. Oh, you're hurting. You never had this before. And, you know, there was always this attraction. And, oh, you're just a man. And... and and they think they're being loving. And who am I to judge? And why should I say anything? And that's what they think. And Paul's saying to them, with very clear speech, it's not love. And it's not mercy. It's sinful arrogance. And it's hurting the church. And he teaches them what to do. Let him him who has done this be removed from among you. And so removal is love here. And then upon repentance, restoration. And just taking this further into church discipline, let me me show you. uh, Oh, yeah, turn to Matthew 18. Go to verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Having trouble with my... And let me read uh, verses 15 to 17. This is Jesus talking about just kind of regular relations among God's people, but then you're going to see it takes a more formal turn. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then this in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so here again you can see that there is real authority in the church. There's the authority that that says, okay, if someone's in unrepentant sin and they refuse to listen to the church, then the church should treat them as a Gentile, that's a pagan, or a tax collector. What's a tax collector? A, A tax collector is someone who's betrayed their people because they're collecting taxes. These are Jews collecting taxes for Romans. And so Jesus is likening this this person, the way you're supposed to treat them, is to recognize that this is someone who is acting like an unbeliever with an element of betrayal to God's people. That may seem harsh, and that is authority in the church. The reason I put this passage up on the screen, verse 18 I want you to see the connection, the context. But notice here that right after the church is called to bring this kind of discipline, what does it say? Whatever you, the church, binds on earth, it shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the full extent of what this means is profound, but at the very least, and I think the clearest uh, within context here, it clearly means that when you discipline someone, God validates that. He's, He's there with that. He doesn't say, oh, oh, you know what, I don't, I don't do that. He says, no, when you, when the church discipline someone when they walk through this process and they discipline them he validates it that's authority from God and notice, notice here he's saying the, the initiative comes from you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven And so you can see there is real God-given authority in the church, and it must be exercised. Otherwise, the church is not biblical. But as I already said, it is not unlimited authority, right? And so a good rule of thumb here, I think, is that on most matters, the church has sway. On most matters, the church has sway. On others, it has the ultimate say. Okay, do you hear me on that? On most matters, the church has sway. On others, it has the ultimate say. Now, what I mean by that is that on most matters, most matters in a Christian's life are wisdom issues or faith issues. This is not a domineering environment. The freedom that we have in Christ is real, and that's why we need to limit what we call sinful 
We need to limit that to what the Bible calls sinful. And we need to be intentional and careful to do so. So that we're not reaching out beyond the Scriptures and saying, oh, that's sinful and that's sinful. And you don't have a shoelace in, that's sinful. Your hair's too long there and that's sinful. We have to be careful what we call sinful and limit it to what the Bible calls sinful. So we're not interested in telling you what to eat. We're not interested in telling you you have to be on a certain diet. We're not interested in telling you how to do your hair or where you should work or live and what, or when you should go on vacation or how much you ought to spend on a car. We're not interested. These are wisdom issues and faith issues. And the church doesn't have authority on them. But some matters are critical. And you can't, for instance, live in sexual immorality and be called a Christian. You can't run around using unbiblical speech, whether it's on social media or verbally, without being confronted and repentant. There has to be a basic humility that flows from the gospel. We have to know mercy because we've been shown mercy. And of course, I could go on. So again, on most matters, the church has sway, but on some, it does have ultimate say. And on those, we have authority, and we have to engage that authority. Otherwise, we won't be biblical. So let me ask you, I know this is a long first point, but let me ask you, how's your ecclesiology today? That's, that's your doctrine of the church. Do you have a high enough view, a functioning high view of the church in your life? Do you recognize that there is actual authority in the local church? Or do you relate to the church on your own terms? Now listen, really, ultimately, you can do that. But it's not going to work with God. It doesn't work like that. And so, you do. You've got to engage this. You have to wrestle with this reality. Now, The second part I want to bring to your attention today is that the pastor is the governing office of the local church. Pastor is the governing office of the local church. There are two offices in the New Testament church. There are pastors and there are deacons. And just to briefly mention, in Acts chapter 6, we see the, the, the prototypical deacon diaconate ministry. And what happens is that these men are are given authority, they receive authority from the church elders there in Jerusalem to care for the poor. And we have that at Crossway. We have four deacons. They have received the mandate to care for the poor among us, to oversee benevolence and mercy ministries, and they are doing a fantastic job for us serving the church and serving the pastors, and it's making a huge impact. When it comes to the local body, pastor is the governing office. Let me point out to you two particular scriptures that really reveal this. So first of all, notice 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 2. Look what Peter says. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he gives them this charge, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And I just paused it there for the sake of time. Tremendous passage of Scripture, very instructive 
for pastors, but also for the church. Now notice here, he calls them elders. Elders. So elders being a term of, of office and of respect. An elder could, could simply be an older person. It can be used that way. But in this case, it's used not just for that or not for that, but rather for the office of elder in the local church. And he's saying, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, fellow elder. So Peter was also an elder. And then he goes on to tell them to shepherd the flock of God. Interesting expression, shepherd the flock of God. And what you find with the term shepherd is you have this metaphor that comes from the Old Testament that God used for his leaders in the Old Testament. Remember, David himself was a shepherd, but also the priests and the prophets were, and, and the elders in the Old Testament, they were often called shepherds of God's flock or God's people. This metaphor is taken into the New Testament. And so the pastor isn't likened to a coach or a simple counselor, but he's likened to this ancient metaphor of the shepherd who cares for a flock. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And so that's why sometimes we say pastors are under shepherds. They're under the great shepherd. And so... And so we're called here elders, the office, and the elders are to shepherd. And the word we use today instead of shepherd is pastor. Pastor. That's where that word comes from. And it, and it, it, it kind of captures the heart and the attitude and, 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 and encompasses the broad set of responsibilities that pastors do in the church among God's people. They shepherd them. But then we get a third descriptor here. Part of that shepherding, part of being an elder, it's exercising oversight. And that's why in the New Testament sometimes you see the word overseer used. And what we're saying is that these terms are essentially synonymous. The office of elder is a pastor, is an overseer. And an overseer is that idea of a governing office. Do you see that there? And that is not the only biblical evidence for this. So look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Here's Paul's approach to the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. So at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, the Scripture says, that Paul gathered the Ephesian elders at Miletus, the office. These are those looking over the churches in the region of Ephesus. And he says here, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So they're called elders at the beginning of the chapter and, and they're to pay attention to the flock There's that shepherding metaphor, right? Pastor. And what has the Holy Spirit made them in their office? Overseers, which is the language of governance, which is authority in the local church. So you see the pastors are the governing office in the local church. Now, to be clear, pastors do much more than govern. 
the local church. We're not only counselors. Sometimes people really have a narrow view of what a pastor is. We're not only counselors. We're not only practitioners where we do ministry. We're not only theologians. I don't mean that in a highbrow way. I just mean people who are studying God and His Word. And we're not simply executives calling the shots. And this is why, by the way, it's very hard to be an administrative assistant for a pastor and why you should praise and encourage our administrative assistants, uh, Krista Winkler, Deb Albright, and Abby O'Dell, who do an amazing job for us because the office, the role of pastor, is a very broad one. Pastors do the work of ministry and it encompasses a broad range of things. But part of it is governance and the exercise of authority. And so oversight, and this is very important, please pay attention, because if there's one thing I really want to communicate here today, it's this. Oversight or authority in the role of pastor doesn't happen in the individual pastor, but rather it happens through plurality. Authority is resident in the plurality of pastors. And it's only to the degree that an individual pastor is representing properly that plurality that authority is being fleshed out or enforced or demonstrated properly. In other words, it can't just be inherent in any one of us. And that's the New Testament pattern. So so here at Crossway, we have three ordained elders, Doug Plank, Steve Heitland and myself. And, and this is not just about any one of us. We don't simply spout off our preferences. I'm the senior pastor, which means I have certain responsibilities in my role to facilitate the team, to care for the team, to, uh, to, to position the team. But in terms of making decisions for the church, we do that together all the time. That's how we govern. That's how we must govern. It's not what Pete thinks or what Pete's preference is. It's not what Steve's is or Doug's is. It's all of us together. This is the New Testament pattern. And so when Paul tells Titus about elders, he doesn't talk about appoint an elder in that church. He says appoint elders. And this pattern in the New Testament, this plurality of elders that govern every local church, is set apart and different from both the Jewish synagogue system and the Gentile norms, where where a single leader was almost exclusively the case. And there's many things that this this preserves and is important for us to recognize. And so when you look at me and my role, it's, it's not meant to say that authority is inherent in me. It's not. It's in the team of pastors or the plurality of pastors, the multiplicity of pastors. That's why we require at least three ordained men. Part of what we think this does for us, it helps us to always recognize that Christ is the head of the church and we are under shepherds. And so as we go about discussing the Scriptures and trying to understand, prayerfully making decisions for the church, 
We are always having to fear God, to fear Christ, and go about decision-making in that knowledge, calling one another to a more faithful practice and understanding of the Word of God at every turn. A position of authority in the church is nothing to trifle with because it makes one more accountable to God. Every position of authority does that. It doesn't give you more freedom to have governing responsibility. It gives you less. It gives you a greater burden. We only praise God that our Lord's burdens are easy and light. Amen? And that's true for every one of us. Let me point out a couple of differences here for Crossway. You may come across as you survey the church world. First of all, this is different. Our model of plurality, of plurality of pastors, is different than the typical senior pastor and staff model. When you're experiencing the evangelical world, you're generally coming into contact with the senior pastor and his staff model. What I mean by that is the senior pastor hires a staff and his staff, it's his staff, and the authority is resident in him, and then it gets delegated to them. Generally, in these scenarios, there is another governing board, and only the senior pastor from that staff will sit on that governing board. The reason only the senior pastor sits on the governing board is because the other pastors don't wield that same authority. They don't share authority. He shares it with the governing board. And that is usually, that's also why, generally speaking, when that senior pastor goes, his staff is expected to resign, generally speaking, because it was his staff. And they swap it out. And, and so there's that model. That's, that's not us. The difference we have is that we, we, uh, we, it's more than share authority, but the authority the Lord gives us is, is only resident in our plurality. And so it's not a senior pastor and a staff. It's the plurality of pastors. And then there is another model. Uh, it's a Presbyterian model that takes the role of elder and breaks it out in the office of, of elder or pastor breaks it out into two parts. This is a Presbyterian model, typically called a teaching elder and a ruling elder. And in, in both cases, I don't, again, I don't have some huge criticism, but I, I do have criticism. We have criticism. It's why we arrange ourselves differently. We want you to know why we do that. Well, generally speaking, when you have a teaching elder a system of teaching elders and ruling elders. The teaching elders have been trained in the Word of God and they basically do the work of pastoring. And the ruling elders is the governing board of the church. And it seems like it could be a good system. And they're, they're, they're generally men from the church um, that uh, make decisions on budget and 
and a lot of times on building, but also on church, matters of church discipline and, and other areas of authority. And that, that's something they do. And, and many times it works very well. However, however, when we look at Scripture, we don't see a breaking apart of the roles of the elder. We see it kept together. That these are the roles of an elder. Part of its governing, part of its teaching, protecting the flock, part of its caring and doing the ministry and certainly training up and it's combined. Now, contrary to what may be popular belief, Presbyterians have not always agreed to break up the role of elder into two parts. In fact, at the Westminster Assembly, that was one of the issues they debated. And so what we're doing here today, the way we approach it in one role... It's not a new idea. It's been around for a very long time. In fact, we think it was around in the first century when Paul and Timothy and Titus were appointing elders. One of the challenges we see in breaking this up is that when you break up the roles where you have the ruling elders and the teaching elders, the teaching elders end up doing the pastoral ministry. And the ruling elders are very unfamiliar with what it means to do pastoral ministry, and yet they're making decisions for the church. And we've seen issues with that, and I think if, if you just do a moderate study of that, you'll see issues with that as well. It doesn't take a whole lot to see that there's a breakdown there. When you take good guys, usually, usually good business guys, you know, generally people think, well, if someone's good in business, then they, they have their act together, and so the church uh, thinks they're really good guys, and they, and, okay, good. But that doesn't mean that they understand pastoral ministry, are engaged with it, are knowledgeable of what's going on in the life of the church. And so there can be a breakdown there. And lest you think I'm the only one spouting this ideal, um, I recently spoke with a, a man who's very high up in a position of authority in a uh, well-known Presbyterian denomination And his words to me were, if I could change one thing about our structure, it would be to do away with the silliness of the ruling elder. Because a lot of times these guys just don't understand what's going on. And just think about this in any area of life. When you you bring things together in a holistic way, the decisions are more sound, they're more solid. And so... That's why we approach the pastoral role that way. Well, I know I'm moving slowly here today, and uh, I'm going a little long, but let me just rip through my last point for you because I think it will be important. So the third part of this is that some ways that pastors... Let me show you some ways that pastors exercise authority. Very, very briefly, in preaching, 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. One of the main uses and demonstrations of God's authority in the local church through the local church pastors is through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It's why every pastor has to be able to teach. In fact, that's the distinction that 
the Scriptures make between a deacon and an elder or a pastor is that the pastor must be able to teach. The deacon might be able to teach, but the pastor has to be able to teach. Why? Because we're taking God's Word upon which we stand and we're delivering it authoritatively and we're saying, this Word has a claim on your life and you're called to respond to it. Not to brush it aside, but to come under it. And so preaching is one of the primary ways that pastors exercise authority. Also in giving direction, as I already read to you, 1 Peter 5.2, the whole idea of exercising oversight. There are always, 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 always more ministry opportunities than resources available. It is one of the constant calls for the pastoral team to make sure that we're staying focused, that we're not, we're not disrupting the future of the church by trying to do so much that slowly our emphasis becomes the church is about all these things that we do and not about Jesus Christ and His gospel. And so we provide direction. And then finally I'll mention simply to train and appoint elders. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete. So you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And our goal is to raise up other elders, laborers for the harvest that God will send out. We are in the midst of seeking to do that, to do it very well indeed. I want to ask the ushers to come. And ushers, as you come, please pass out the elements right away. Let me mention... that when we partake of communion today, it's for everyone who trusts Jesus Christ. So if you trust Him and you belong to Him, you've been baptized in His name, then please partake with us. If you haven't trusted Him yet, if you haven't been baptized yet, come and talk to us. We want to lead you to Christ, tell you how glorious our Savior is. God gives authority to pastors for oversight of the church, and each Christian should wrestle with it. I want to encourage you to wrestle with it. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Don't simply, um, don't simply go away hearing me say, I mean, please don't do this. It, it wouldn't be true. I, I'm not saying that everything the pastor says, you, you should just automatically obey. Right? There'd be something unhealthy about that, right? That, there'd be, that'd be problematic. It, it doesn't, it's, it's too automatically. It, it doesn't recognize that Jesus is the authority of the church and that the pastoral plurality is under authority. But it would also be wrong to reflexively resist everything the pastor says, to reflexively be skeptical, be skeptical of authority, to continually respond with, well, you know, I just... You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. And, and I think what needs to happen is where you feel the pastor's bringing authority, whether it's in teaching or in direction, whether it's in training and appointing leaders in the church, 
about changing a ministry direction. You liked the way it was going, but the pastor said, no, we need to change it. And now you don't like it anymore. Changing the name of a ministry. Oh, you know, oh, I don't like that. I think what needs to happen, you need to wrestle with that. You need to ask your heart, am I just reflexively rebellious? Do, do the pastors have the authority to make this decision? Do they have the authority to confront or challenge? Was it right for them to exercise that? Are they presenting scriptures that make that clear? Are they standing on God's word in the way they're doing this? In other words, be good Bereans when it comes to authority. But here's what you have to do. If the pastors properly exercise authority, they need to embrace it and be grateful to God for it. And so I ask you, are you wrestling? Are you a faithful engager, even on this? Well, let me give you I better pass here. I'll leave it there. Are you wrestling well? Are you wrestling well with the authority that God has given to pastors? As I said, Jesus is our king and he's the main authority of the church. All other authority in the church, whether it's pastors, whether it's us together, submitting to one another comes under him under him under his word and so here's something he commands us to do to do it often often in remembrance of him remembrance of what he's done for us right For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.